Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. You know, occasionally we try to mix up the format of our episodes just to give our listeners some variety. And Wade had an idea that we hope you'll enjoy. That's right. Occasionally, our appellate courts issue opinions that seem to be, I don't know, Tane, chock full of topics that judges really need to know. Veritably overflowing with a wealth of knowledge. Bursting at the seams. Indeed. And so these cases that we're going to discuss in this other format, they come from the same set of facts, but they're all kind of legal issues involved that we think deserve consideration. I think that the truth of the matter is that Wade's son, Matt Paget noted that some of our episodes are so in the weeds on the details of a principle of law that it can be difficult to listen. And we'll be the first to admit that may be true. And, you know, Matt's a lawyer in Augusta, so we listen to his idea. Well, we're not going to follow this format very often or every time, but we wanted to give it a try and give some feet and get some feedback from our listeners. We'd like some feedback, wouldn't we, Tane? Yes. So make sure we hear from you via email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com and let us know if you like this format. But enough of that. Let's tell the folks what we're discussing today, Wade. All right. So for our inaugural foray into this deep dive on a single case sort of episode, we're going to be... We're going to be talking about about a case called Finney, F-I-N-N-E-Y versus the state. I don't have the Georgia site yet because of the how new it is, right. but the southeast site is 855, southeast 2nd, 578, and it's a, from March 1st, 2021. Now, Tane, where can people find this so they don't wreck their car trying to write down this just unbelievably awesome information we're going to give them in this podcast? As always please go to our website at goodjudgepod.com and everything you need to know related to this, including a copy of the case, will be found right there. So let's get started. The decision in this case begins with this sentence. Appellant Benjamin Finney, who was a drug dealer in Macon, you know, that's probably not a good sign if you're the appellant, right? You would, you would think that's probably a bad harbinger of what's about to come. If, 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 so. the, if the Supreme Court says, you are a drug dealer in Macon, <laughs> yikes. Yeah, so, but uh, the truth is what it is, Wade. Truth. So, truth. It is. Um, so a couple of points we need to make here before we begin this sort of new format that we will occasionally use. Number one, some of the cases that we are going to discuss are going to have to be retried. Yes. So we're going to intentionally skip over some facts, names, dates, other details to make sure that our um, podcast, our little, our little silly podcast, doesn't have any potential effect on retrials. So these names, facts, etc., they're all in the appellate case. We don't know them independently of reading the appellate decision, so right. they're there. We just don't want to add to any confusion or, or misunderstanding. Yeah, and the second point that we've stressed many times before, which we specifically address here, is the judges who hear these cases are awesome judges. Now, frequently the case decided on appeal only has a passing similarity with the case that was actually tried. We all know that how that happens. So this is there is no occasion when we're attempting to criticize the judges or the lawyers or the witnesses or anyone else that we cover in these cases. Um, in fact, we think you guys are awesome. We really do, and we're not just being flippant about that. But, but, it's, but it's easy to get lost and think that if we make a funny comment or attempt at a funny comment that we're somehow taking a slap at somebody. Nah. or We're really not. We're just 
trying to make this not painfully painful to listen to, aren't we, Tank? Yeah, we try the best we can. So, Wade, let's talk about a little bit about the facts of this case. All right, now the facts of this case go on for pages, and I think that that was intentional because they knew they were going to overturn this conviction. Uh-oh, spoiler alert. Anyway, so they knew they were going to overturn this conviction, and so they wanted to to give all the facts, and I don't know why that was important to them, but it was. But this defendant, Mr. Finney, was convicted of felony murder and two firearms offenses based upon the fatal shooting of a young lady named Gwendolyn Cole that the case called the mother of one of appellant's rivals. Probably also another harbinger of things to come. Yep. Um, yeah, before the shooting, Finney and his girlfriend were the victims of a home invasion committed by two or three other people. The intruders stole about $30,000 in cash, 300 pounds of marijuana, and two kilos of cocaine. The opinion includes a finding that the stolen drugs were worth more than $300,000. So the girlfriend testified that because of that home invasion, invasion she... She purchased two Glock pistols and a Bushmaster AR-15 rifle for protection. You know, Finney was already a convicted felon, so the girlfriend purchased those weapons. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So we, I mean, there's no evidence that he purchased them, but there was plenty of evidence that they were in the house. So, and, and that'll come, it'll, it'll become more apparent here in a minute. Finney was a convicted felon, and, and, and another friend of Finney's, testified that about that same time, Finney gave him money to purchase two additional AR-15 rifles, and that he did so. Two nights after that friend purchased those additional rifles, someone, someone, shot up the home of a close associate of of Finney's with, wait for it, AR-15s, plural. Some of the shell casings that they found there matched one of the guns that that Finney's friend had purchased for him, and the other shell casings came from another AR-15 that they just never recovered. But it's the same AR-15 that was used to kill Miss Cole, again, the case that we're here about. The friend confronted Finney about the shooting. Of the house. Yeah, of the house. And then Finney indicated that the same person that had robbed him must have shot up the associate's home. We're both under attack. And then later... Someone testified that Finney actually somewhat admitted and made a statement that said it was actually him who had shot up the house, the associate's home, because Finney believed that the associate had somehow been involved in that um, home invasion. Yeah, the opinion outlines several other altercations that Finney initiated or was involved with as part of his attempt to determine who had robbed him and to exact his own brand of retribution. So after one of those altercations, Ms. Cole became aware that her son was involved in a beef with Finney. She tried to intervene, but she was unsuccessful. Later that night, someone knocked on Ms. Cole's door at around 10 o'clock p.m., and she spoke to the man through the door. The man asked if her son was home, and she told the man through the closed door that her son was not home. Then the person or people at the door started shooting through the door, striking Ms. Cole. Several neighbors saw two or three men, depending on the account, either shooting or fleeing from the scene. Collectively, the witnesses were able to provide a description, although a little bit vague, of the clothing the two men were wearing. Ms. Cole later died at the hospital, uh, in fact, on the next day. So at Ms. Cole's home now, Tane, law enforcement found 72 
shell casings of 223 caliber. Mm -hmm. 51 of those cases were fired from the Bushmaster AR-15 that Finney's girlfriend had purchased, and the remaining 21 shell casings were fired from the same AR-15. They never recovered it, but it's the same one that was used to shoot up the associate's house that we talked, talked about a few minutes ago. Like I said, that second rifle wasn't recovered. Right. So on the night that Ms. Cole was shot, Finney, his girlfriend, and her children all stayed at a hotel under the watch of one of Finney's friends. Over the next few days, Finney, his girlfriend, and the kids moved around and stayed at different hotels and also at a campground. So once the investigation began in earnest, officers contacted Finney's friend who had purchased the two AR-15s for Finney. Of course, he, he immediately gave up that he had purchased them for Finney. They eventually got in touch with Finney, and he turned over one of the rifles but claimed the other one had been involved and, uh, you know, been stolen, and it was, quote, on the streets. Later, Finney was stopped in his vehicle, and officers located cocaine and two Glock pistols as a part of a search incident to arrest. Police obtained a search warrant a few days later for the girlfriend's home, where they found owner's manuals for two Bushmaster rifles and two additional Glock pistols. Right, they actually found the pistols. Just as an aside, you don't need to read the uh, instructional manual. Yeah, I mean, if you, need a, if you need an instructional manual, you don't need an AR-15. Nah, just throw it aside. Finney was prosecuted for the drugs and the guns that were discovered during that traffic stop, but the prosecution for that offenses occurred in federal court. Finney did 70 months of, of incarceration time in a federal facility in Arkansas that's going to become relevant in a moment. Don't worry, folks. We're about a third of the way through the facts of this case. <laughs> <laughs> so while Finney was in prison in Arkansas, the AR-15 that Finney's girlfriend had purchased and which was used in the murder of Ms. Cole was found in a bag in the woods in Macon. Does that happen in Cobb County? You oh, yeah. We found bags of rifles all the time. Yeah, absolutely. That same rifle had been used in an incident subsequent to Ms. Cole's murder where another house in Macon was shot up and another man was killed. The perpetrator of that other separate crime was convicted for that murder. There was no evidence that that, that second man had any connection at all to Finney However, the crime lab was able to connect 51 of the shell casings found from Ms. Cole's door to that particular AR-15 rifle. That's right. Now, while Finney was in custody, he allegedly confessed to a cellmate. It was not a complete confession, but the comments clearly implicated Finney in Ms. Cole's murder. That was not the only jailhouse conversation that was involved in this case. Another man, known as Marlon, had been identified by Finney as being involved in the shooting of Ms. Cole. Marlon did some federal time in West Virginia, and two of his cellmates came forward to tell officers that Marlon had confessed his involvement with Finney in the murder of Miss Cole during the time that they were incarcerated together in West Virginia. Marlon never identified Finney by name, but did say that the other person involved was doing federal time in Forest City, Arkansas. That just happened to be the same town where Finney was doing federal time. So neither Marlon nor Finney testified at Finney's trial. And, and remember now, we're trying the murder of Miss Cole by allegedly by Finney. Neither Marlon nor Finney testified, and that fact's going to become really important as this case goes forward. So tell the folks, so tell me we finally <sighs> finished the facts <laughs> of the case. And I um, hope you all were taking notes during well, that while hope, you were driving around or whatever you were doing. You know, sometimes I get interested in the facts just because yeah. it's, it's another set of facts. 
tell the people what the three appellate issues we're going to talk about today are. Sure. So really, three really important issues. First, inadmissible hearsay and also things relating to the confrontation clause um, from Marlin's former cellmates in West Virginia. So that's where that comes from. The second issue is jury charge issues relating to corroboration requirements when an accomplice testifies. And third, 404B, the uh, other related incidents um, uh, relating to prior shootings and altercations that may or may not have involved Finney or some of the other people involved in the case. So those are the three main issues that we're going to talk about today. So talking from a podcast standpoint, you see this allows us to deal with that corroboration requirement that's becoming a, it's been, it's come up several times lately in, in appellate decisions, allows us to touch on some hearsay, and then also allows us to touch on some 404B, which we always could use a little refresher on. And, and and let me just say this. Wayne and I, as we've often confessed, are not the most brilliant people in the world. But when the same issue comes up in appellate cases frequently in, in, in within several months of each other, it's probably an issue that they're looking at closely, and you might want to be careful when that issue comes up in your case. So, so let's, let's start with this cellmate yeah. confession business. Now, remember, Tane, we're not talking about the cellmate of the defendant. That right. person also testified, but that's not the issue because right. – that, that's a whole other issue that we can talk about. But instead, what we're talking about here are witnesses of who were cellmates of Marlin that you could call an accomplice. Or a co-conspirator. Right. You could. We would call that person an agent or a principal-agent relationship in civil. But in criminal, we call them accomplices. That's right. So... If a former cellmate has provided officers information about a statement the defendant allegedly made while in custody, a couple of bells should go off for everyone involved. Number one, we've got a confrontation clause issue or a potential confrontation clause issue. That is, the former cellmate has to testify as to what the defendant said in the jail cell. And number two, we've got a hearsay issue. Probably not hearsay under 24-8-801-D2 because it is the party's own statement. So if we're talking about something that the defendant said, then that may be an admission against party interest or something along Correct. those lines, which might be admissible. Tane, just to help everybody remember, the whole reason we even care about hearsay at all is because you can't cross-examine it, right? That's right. Well, you can't really cross-examine yourself. If, if you said it, you're going to be liable for that statement, right? Right. And so that's why the definition of hearsay, remember, that's in the definition section, not right. the exceptions, right. the definitions. Right. They said that's not hearsay. What you said, that's not hearsay. Right. Uh, although I will tell you that I have had some cases where I've actually had people try to cross-examine themselves on the witness stand, and it's just turned out badly. But anyway, I digress. Folks, we need to pause now for an important announcement. Folks, this is Wade and Tane, and you're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web. As always, you can find our outlines for these podcasts, as well as supplemental materials on our website at goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcasts at our email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com, and we're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcasting platform. And tell all your friends. Thanks. And now we're going to return back to our regularly scheduled programming already in progress. 
now, so Tane talked about if the person talking in the jail cell was the defendant. Let me talk for a minute about what happens if that p- person talking in the jail cell or similar situation is the accomplice of this defendant. There an, are an all sorts. An important distinction. <laughs> very. There are all sorts of bells that need to be going off then. So you've got the same confrontation clause. You've got the same hearsay issues. But now you have a third issue that, like I said, is becoming much, has been has been litigated frequently and I recently, and that is the accomplice corroboration requirement, which we're going to deal with in a minute. So let's start Tane with the confrontation clause and hearsay. You know these things get usually wrapped up and intertwined pretty right. regularly. That's right. So we're we are going to talk about them interchangeably during this podcast, but please understand they are separate issues. For example, if somebody raises to you, Judge, a confrontation clause objection to find that it fits under a hearsay objection, re, I mean exception, really doesn't solve the problem. That's right. So well, and vice versa. That's right. Okay. So. So let's start with what kind of the seminal case is on on this issue. And, and it's Crawford. And we, we always talk about a Crawford problem or a Crawford issue whenever we talk about confrontation clause. But one of the things that's important to note is that Crawford wasn't decided until 2004. That's right. Now, it has become pretty prominent, and, and, and it's the thing we reference more often than not. But the thing that, that I think judges need to hear Confrontation clause: the the defendant has a right to confront his or her accusers, right? Right to 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 cross-examine witnesses about the things that they're testifying about. Correct. If that evidence is testimonial, underline that, put it in bold, put it in in you know highlights, whatever you want to do. Hey, it's bold in our outline. It is bold in our outline that you can find at goodjudgepod.com. So testimonial, that's the key, that's the key word. So let's talk about what that means, Wade. So basically, if the purpose of the statement was to pursue or to further a criminal prosecution, it is testimonial. If the primary purpose of the statement was not in an attempt to to further a prosecution, it is not testimonial. So Tane, tell folks where this comes up a whole, whole lot. Yeah, and we're actually going to talk about some some issues uh, about this in another podcast yeah. we're doing yeah. uh, on another case. But for example, um, if if uh, if nine somebody's making a nine one one telephone call, and we get this in cases all the time, part of what they're talking to the operator about, who's talking to them on the nine one one call, is non testimonial evidence. In other words, they're getting the who, what, when, and where at the outset? Where are you? Is someone hurt? Are you in danger? You know, what happened? All of those things are the the operator simply getting the information that they need. Now, it may become testimonial later in the call, and we see this in court and we're called upon to rule on it. Just because it started out as a non-testimonial statement doesn't mean it can't morph into one, which is, you know, well, he's beat me up on a whole lot of other occasions before, and he's he came out today with a gun and wanted to shoot me, and we had this discussion, and yada, yada. That certainly can become testimony, testimonial, especially if the 911 operator starts to ask more questions. Which, they're, which they're trained to do. Yeah, they're trained to do, to get more information. So basically, Judge, your big test here, especially in 911 calls, is whether or not the statement is backward looking. If it is recounting something that has already clearly happened, 
more likely than not, that's going to be determined, determined to be testimonial as opposed to what we might otherwise call the calls call an excited utterance. That's in other right. words, this is what's going on right now. And I need this help and I need that help. And he's wearing blue, blue pants and he's driving a red car and he's going south on green street. All that's good. All that's, that's right. non-testimonial. It's where we start saying, and, and he's also been a jerk on another occasion. Let me tell you all about that. Or he's also a drug dealer, yeah. you know, which you'll get on yeah. a 911 call from time to time. Exactly. And but he's probably armed is probably okay. That's not right. testimonial. Right. So if it's backward looking, that's where the judge needs to be sort of paying attention. But now let's talk about Finney's particular confrontation clause issue, Tang. Right. Because it really wasn't a 911 call. No. In Finney, the defendant uh, alleged a confrontation clause problem because Marlon's former cellmate, so the accomplices or the alleged accomplices' former cellmate, not the defendant's former cellmate, was testifying, or, or there were actually two of them, they were both testifying about what Marlon told them while they were all incarcerated in West Virginia. Now, understand Cellmates are testifying about what Marlon told them that Marlon and Finney did together. Correct. And now if, you know, we in, in, in the hearsay land, we call the person who makes the statement as the declarant. Right. So witness being former cellmate is testifying that declarant said X. Right. So Marlon told me he and Finney went and shot up the house. Right. So if the declarant is not going to testify, the person's that person's statement made during his or her incarceration is being admitted without the defendant having the right to cross-examine the person that made the statement that's Marlin. even that's even marginally relevant. In this case, Marlon. A hundred percent. So that if the statement really qualifies as a co-conspirator statement, right? Right. There's no confrontation clause issue. Why, Tane? Because the definition of a co-conspirator statement has to be a statement made during the pendency, but also in the furtherance of the cover-up or, the, or were, the crime. I knew you were with me on that. So basically, it's a good thing I read the case, Wade. I know, right? <laughs> so basically, for it to be a true co-conspirator statement, it can't violate the confrontation clause because it was made to further the conspiracy. Mm -hmm. As opposed to if it wasn't made to further the conspiracy, it don't qualify as a co as a co-conspirator statement. That's right. And so let's talk about co-conspirator statements, and 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 while they're not hearsay, Tane, we've talked about this a little bit. But so they, they made a confrontation clause objection. They made a hearsay objection and they got intertwined and I'm about to intertwine them too. But I think these things are these concepts of confrontation clause and hearsay are so intertwinable. Is that a word? Sure. Or subject to being intertwined. <laughs> there you go. That, that, that I think it's pretty common to do that. So the statement of Marlon to the cellmates would be hearsay because, again, it's an out-of-court statement offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted. Right. Unless that statement is either, A, not hearsay, or B, falls within an exception. Mm -hmm. If you are dealing with 801, that is the definition of hearsay. So, in other words, we're not getting to the exceptions of excited utterance and business records and all that if we are talking about 801. 801D specifically says that the what statements should not be considered hearsay. Right. So it doesn't meet the definition of hearsay. Just understand that. 
because it is a statement that as a policy matter, we've said, hey, Tane, you're responsible for your own statements you made back when you were in high school and for Gary's statements because he was your co-conspirator. That is so true. You know, it's funny if anybody actually knew Gary on this thing, but <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So if so, you're going to be sort of stuck with the statements that you make and anyone that an agent of yours makes who is trying to push forward this illegal, I guess, partnership that you have going. Right. So the, the big issue that came up in Finney's case was that the co-conspirator statement potentially wasn't made in furtherance of the conspiracy. Absolutely. So it actually... Okay, let me keep stay with me here. It actually met the definition of hearsay and and didn't fall outside of what's defined as hearsay under 801. So because it did, it was defined as hearsay, then we move on to essentially the next step of that analysis. Then the only other way it would come in if it's hearsay, the only other way we know that it comes in is if there's some uh, exception, exception to the rule. Business, business record? <laughs> but it wouldn't qualify. <laughs> yeah. So so you know, when you're examining a co-conspirator statement, the, the cases have become crystal clear, and it's, it's happened more recently. If the statement is bragging or, as they have said repeatedly, spilling the beans to someone without any really a true attempt to sort of further the conspiracy – the statement does not qualify as a co-conspirator statement. Something we have figured out as judges in courts of law is that people who commit crimes seem to have this unbelievable need to unburden their soul to other people who commit crimes. <laughs> and then all of those people seek a deal in order to be able to help them with unburdening their soul and spread that information in courts of law. So in other words... Uh, I'm in the cell. He spills the beans to me. I call the DA. I want a deal for myself. I'll tell you everything he said. And that's how we end up getting all of these uh, things that are probably hearsay, probably. Um, so so the bottom line here for you is, and, the, and what the courts, the appellate courts have attempted to, to underscore for us is, if the guy is just spilling the beans, pouring his heart out to somebody about the crime, that's not in furtherance of the cons conspiracy it's hearsay, and there's a co potential confrontation clause there. What if, there. what if they're talking to law enforcement? That could be in furtherance, right? Potentially not. <laughs> no, because they're not going to be – I mean, that first of all, it's testimonial, and we can get all the way back to that part of it. But, <laughs> but uh, secondly, yeah, it, it's not in furtherance of the conspiracy because if they're moving. talking to law enforcement, yeah, it's actually – yeah. Hurting the conspiracy, exactly. not helping the conspiracy. And so some of you are going to be arguing us with us through your device, and you're going to say, hey, wait a minute, Marlon was in prison. How could that conspiracy be ongoing? Because you know it, it's sort of a two-part deal with co-conspirator statements. It's got to be an ongoing conspiracy, and it's got to be in furtherance of the conspiracy. He's in jail. That conspiracy had to have ended, right, Tane? Not necessarily, Wade. Because we know that Georgia's rules in evidence rules differ slightly from the federal rules of evidence. And this particular point right here was hotly contested when the evidence rules were passed. A conspiracy continues 
through the concealment phase in Georgia. Keep in mind, Marlon and Finney had not been arrested or charged at all with Miss Cole's murder when everybody went to federal prison. They kind of took a timeout, I guess, for lack of a better word. Right. And so for the purposes of the hearsay exception, a conspiracy is deemed to endure so long as the parties there too attempt to conceal either the crime or the identity of those perpetrators. And we've got case law that, that supports all this. We're not going to cite it or read it to you here, but that's going to be in our outline that you can find on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. Yeah. So the court in Finney essentially acknowledged the issue of the concealment phase by deciding that, quote, at the time of Marlon's statement, he and appellant had not yet been charged with crimes related to Ms. Cole's murder, and it may be that their alleged conspiracy to commit those crimes was still in its concealment phase. So the problem wasn't was a conspiracy ongoing. The right. problem was whether it, the statement to the, the, the cellmates did anything to further the conspiracy. And there's a great quote from the case, and there's a, a huge case in, in Supreme Court parlance called State versus Lane, 308 Georgia 10, and that was decided in 2020, that really started this whole spill the beans stuff. And they've and it's I bet it's been cited thirty times since then, mm -hmm. because the spill the beans thing is if you are spilling the beans, you are just disclosing the scheme. You're not doing anything to further the conspiracy, as you've said. You're unburdening your soul or whatever to your soulmate. Now that does not mean, though, Tane, all backward-looking statements about our conspiracy, sort of recounting our conspiracy, are automatically excluded, or they can never qualify as a co-conspirator statement, right? Right. I mean, for example, if you were telling someone about the crime to tell them where you hid the weapon to get them to go and hide some evidence for you, that's certainly in furtherance of the conspiracy. So just because it's backward looking doesn't mean um, that it's that it's not in furtherance of the conspiracy. Um, also, there's a case called Kemp versus State, no relation, um, <laughs> holding that the trial court was authorized to conclude that statements the appellant made to a fellow gang member in the local jail were made in furtherance of a conspiracy to engage in ongoing criminal gang activity because, quote, they could be interpreted as fostering cohesiveness with, with another gang member as providing information to a fellow co-conspirator of the criminal street gang. So, so your conspiracy can be within a larger conspiracy. Exactly. So the Georgia Supreme Court has held that even though the trial court in Finney, they held that even though the, the trial court found that Marlin's statements furthered the conspiracy, there was simply no evidence to support that conclusion. Therefore, the trial court erred in admitting the statement of the co-conspirator, which really probably wasn't—it's it's probably wrong to call it a co-conspirator statement if it doesn't meet the statutory definition. That's right, and and it's important here too. There was a timely objection yeah. made to that, and there was some analysis done, and the court concluded that it that it was an appropriate it was an appropriate statement to be admitted as a co-conspirator statement. So. Uh, that was problematic. So let's talk about this corroboration of the accomplice. So let's put us, let's assume for a minute that Marlon was deemed an accomplice and that statement would otherwise come in because otherwise the, the court went ahead and handled it here, even though they ruled that it should never have come in. Right. 
I think they could have easily made short shrift of it, but they took an opportunity to talk about this corroboration requirement. Which leads way to me to, way to, me to believe that that is an important issue to the appellate court. So let's talk a little bit about that. So the second issue is corroboration of accomplice. Um, we're well aware that testimony of a single witness is generally sufficient to establish a fact. That's OCGA section 24-14-8, and we probably charge that in a multitude of cases that we try to juries. But that phrase is uh, generally sufficient, and there's a reason for that, right, Wayne? Yeah, the, I, I would call it the uh, accomplice add-on. Um, right. the, the pattern charge has you know, sort of an or or a subsection or whatever you want to call it that says the testimony of an accomplice must accomplice must be corroborated. That corroboration requirement is true even if the accomplice does not testify or does testify. And I think I've said accomplished twice now. Let me try that again. In felony cases, the testimony of an accomplice must be corroborated. And this corroboration requirement is true even if the accomplice does not testify at trial. And here's the important thing, folks. This is plain, a plain error issue on appeal. So it's one of those things you got to get right. So if if there's so even if they don't object, right? It's not it's not waivable essentially, and you need to be on your game when there is an accomplice testifying or accomplice testimony is admitted some other way. Prosecutors over in my section of, of Georgia have just fallen in love with the single witnesses sufficient charge. And they just charge, they, they, it's part of their pattern, I guess, of what they want me to ask in every case. But if there is any hint that a witness could be considered an accomplice in the underlying offense, you absolutely must give the corroboration add-on even if it's not requested. Exactly. And that's where, that's where again, we've got to be on our game. It doesn't matter that they didn't request the accomplice add-on. It's not one of those issues that's going to be waivable in most cases. It's going to be charged as, as plain error. Now, sufficient corroborating evidence, it doesn't have to be a lot. It could be slight. We've got some of those cases in our outline that talk about it can be slight, but it's got to be something other than... Basically, so it has to be something that is independent of that accomplice testimony. Yeah, some examples of that are things like text messages between the defendant and accomplice after the crime that were clearly related to the crime or recorded phone calls. Man, the famous jail calls. We get them Golly. in so many cases where people are talking about the crime. That can be sufficient But we've also got some insufficient examples in our outline and, and, right. and where they've said that basically – the defendant's participation was not sufficiently corroborated. There, there wasn't sufficient corroboration of the accomplice's testimony is the way I should phrase it. Right. And we've got those cases in our outline as well. So in Finney, this court said that the accomplice's statement should not have been admitted first and foremost because it really wasn't, it didn't get through the, the co-conspirator exception, but it was. And then sort of to add a problem to a problem, the trial judge gave the standard one witness's sufficient charge without adding the accomplice co corroboration requirement. And so now it was sort and, of like... And I'll say this too, Wade, just reading between the lines in that, um, in that opinion, I don't think it was asked for. No, it clearly was not. Yeah. But they said, look, that's a real problem when you sort of don't mention this corroboration requirement. So then they turned... Yeah, that's that goes back to that plain error argument, and it doesn't have to be 
objected to. So now let's move quickly to 404B. And I don't want, because a lot of these cases deal with 404B, Tane, and I don't know that we could do better than we did with our FOP, Judge McBurney. You say we did with our, we just opened the door and let him run through it, man. We didn't, you and I didn't add anything Look, to that you, conversation. You, you take credit for what you want to take credit for? Uh, I mean, I'll, take, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll absolutely borrow his expertise. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, we're I've not, got his cell number. I just call him. Yeah, I say, hey, I got this. I got this four three thing. So remember that we're not going to talk about that in, in depth again. If you want to hear that, we have episodes on that. Please go listen to them. You can see it in our feed, and, and you can go even get that, the, the downloads of those. But when you're dealing with 404B, the offering party, because it could be either party, the offering party must show, one, that the evidence is relevant to an issue other than character. Mm -hmm. Two, the probative value of the evidence is not substantially outweighed by its undue prejudice. Most people call that the 403 piece. Mm -hmm. And then three, that there is sufficient proof for a jury to find by a preponderance of the evidence, at least, that the defendant committed the other act. And that's from that strong case that's sort of become the go-to site for 404B. Yeah, so in Finney... Uh, the state was allowed to present evidence of three prior shootings that they alleged proved motive. However, the Supreme Court noted that while they argued motive, there was no evidence that the people shot at during those prior incidents had anything to do with the home invasion for which Finney was allegedly seeking revenge. There was actually some question as to whether Finney had any part in one of the shooting, other shooting incidents at all. In another of the prior shootings, it was undisputed that Finney was actually the target or the victim of another competitor. Yeah, it's hard to use a 404B when you're the victim of the crime. I yeah. mean, I guess it could, I guess, but it was, uh, if you're the victim, I mean, I think 404B is not really intended to be used when you're the victim of something. When you're well, the, the active agent in something, maybe, but not when you're the victim. Yeah, and the Supreme Court uh, certainly came down in that on that side because basically what the court said is these three incidents that were admitted essentially were classic propensity or character evidence. In other words, he's a violent person, he has a propensity to be violent, and therefore he must have committed this murder. And exactly. that's essentially what the Supreme Court said in the admission of these three and, incidents. And they talk about it in ways that, that are much more eloquent than I would have, but there are fancy pants ways to say propensity. Right. Like the, every time the defendant is... He, when, when he, he likes to control things or he likes to he always responds with violence that's propensity that, that that doesn't use the word propensity but when confronted the defendant responds with violence well, that is propensity and it didn't help in this case that essentially that was a large part of the state's closing was that this is a violent person in our community who needs to be dealt with appropriately and so uh that sort of served that one up on a silver platter. Look, there's no doubt that the home invasion committed against Finney started a mini war in Macon. There's really no doubt about that because there'd be all kind of people going to federal court and everybody's oh, got guns and drugs. Alle allegedly. Allegedly. This case is getting retried. Right? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. But in some of those incidents, Finney would be best described as a victim instead of the instigator. Right. So the court held that evidence of these other shootings that ultimately, I guess, culminated in Miss Cole's murder really should not have been introduced under 404B at all. Right. Now, there is one, you know, I love it when our appellate judges hide some stuff in a footnote or an endnote. They don't hide it. It's like a nugget, Wade. It's like an Easter egg that you go and you search and you find it. And if you remember in law school, sometimes that was the important nugget. 
Exactly. So we know this episode's getting long, but occasionally they do hide those nuggets, and we want to point out one in Finney because we've seen it happen too often lately. Tane, you know that the pattern charge that we give to the jury concerning reasonable doubt basically tells them they don't have to, the state's not required to prove it to have mathematical certainty. Right. Well, occasionally, Tane, lawyers try to attempt to address that issue in their closing arguments about this mathematical certainty, and they really just need to leave it alone. Yeah, there have been two or three cases where that has happened, and it really, it, it almost always seems to cause error of some kind when they do that. In the final footnote of uh, the 40-page opinion, the justices noted that they were not even going to address the several claims of ineffective assistance of counsel because they were not likely to recur on appeal. But they did make one special note about a line from the prosecutor's closing argument. The prosecutor allegedly made a statement to the effect that to meet the beyond a reasonable doubt standard, the state does not have to prove the defendant guilty 51 versus 49. The justices noted that such an argument is obviously wrong and cited their decision in De Belbut? <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I think that's what it is versus the state. D-E-B-E-L-B-O-T. Yeah, De Belbot. Yeah. It's, it's in our notes at goodjudgepod.com. But they cited that as pre prejudice for that obvious error. And I remember when that case came out, they were talking about don't say 5149. I mean, or 8990. Just, yeah. just leave it alone. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, it's pretty clear that any reference to percentages or any similar language in a closing argument could give rise to a plain error reversal on appeal. And plain error means we have to go get it even if it's not objected to. That's exactly right. And again, you got to be on your game. Folks, thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this deep dive version of the Finney versus State decision. We, it's really chock full of legal issues that trial judges seem to face on a regular basis. Well, you know, thank goodness for our amazing appellate courts, Wade. I mean, what would we do without them? They're awesome. So we hope that you like this occasional change of how we format our episodes, and we don't intend to always center our episodes on a single appellate decision, but we do like doing that occasionally just to break things up a bit. And let me say this. My son, Matt, we t you talked about him in the opening. He's a great young lawyer. And, and, I an, really, awesome, and an awesome drummer. And an awesome drummer and an awesome dad and a better son, good brother. Aww. Am I done? No, you could go on for days, yeah. but let's just uh, keep it at that. Anyway, I'm really proud of him. I, I really couldn't be more proud of him. But but he actually thought enough of me to reach out and sort of give his opinion that he likes the podcast, but sometimes we get so in the weeds he can't listen to it with a non-lawyer in the car or anything like that. <laughs> so he thought it might be more inclusive and helpful if we sort of gave the factual background to the case that, that we're following. I thought that was a great idea, and I wanted to make sure that we listened. If he thinks enough to, to say it, I wanted to make sure – um, that I pay enough attention to, to listen. So shout out to Matt for the constructive criticism. And I hope we did you proud, Matt. So folks, send us an email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com and let us know what you think about this episode and any of our other episodes. We really want your help with episode topics, so please let us know your thoughts. You can always visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for these episode notes or from this or any of the other episodes as well. And thanks again for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. Always remember, eat your vegetables. 
Well, folks, that's all we have for another exciting and enthralling topic here on the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to the entire University of Georgia College of Law for assisting in our recording. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But nobody can get it all. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Thanks to our NJO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions, and they do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise, but please contact someone else with any complaints. But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You've been doing a great job doing that. We really appreciate the help. You can also visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Mint Podcast.